Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tessa. So in today's episode, I have the historical story today. Woo-woo. Mm-hmm. I'm stoked. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. What do you have for us today? I got some good old Reddit stories for you. I got okay. a part one and part two. Okay. Right on. And a little UFO story. Perfect. You see? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Uh, you guys can't see it, but she was holding a cigar in her mouth. <laughs> and I have a fedora. <laughs> and a fedora. A fedora. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, so before we get started, just want to let you guys know that any images that are associated with our stories today, we will post those on our Instagram. You can check them out there. If you would like to send us a story of your own, they can be true, they can be fake, you can email those to us at podcast. 801 at gmail.com or DM those to us on our Instagram and we can read them here on the podcast. All righty. You ready? I'm ready. Go for it. Okay. This first one was posted to Backwoods Creepy by LK underscore frustrated. My professor saw a strange rectangle on a mountain road. When I went to college, I befriended a professor of mathematics He was one of the most intelligent, eloquent, and articulate people that I've ever known. A remarkable family man who married in his 20s with a daughter and a son. He never drank or smoked, never used drugs, never permitted himself to curse, raise his voice, or become aggressive even in disagreements. He was always in control, always punctual and on time, always organized and very disciplined. And he wore clothing that would not look out of place at the turn of the 20th century and acted like a true gentleman. I'm just telling you what kind of man he was. Not a crazy man, not a junkie, no mental illnesses. I had the pleasure of taking advanced algebra, calculus 1, calculus 2, and differential equations with him. Anyway, we had the STEM club room in the math department where we students hang out to study and chit-chat. And sometimes our professor would join us for help with tutoring, homework, exam study help, and just discussions about various unrelated topics. One time, he told us a story about when he saw something strange in the woods. This happened during the 90s when he was a teenager. He lived in Quincy, California at the time, and he had a hobby of driving his dad's old beat-up truck all over the Sierra Nevada mountains just for exploring and also for hunting animals and gathering wild berries. He liked following old mining roads and seeing where they led. One such time, he was out looking for blackberries to pick. It was getting late and the sun had set, so he was driving down the narrow road when he saw there was an obstruction in the road. He saw, well, it looked like someone had stretched a giant plastic bag across the road. He thought it might have been construction work or something. As he drove up to what he thought was the plastic bag, he stopped his vehicle within 40 feet of it and he saw that it was not indeed a plastic bag. It was some kind of screen or curtain, a two-dimensional flat shape stretching over the road, perpendicular to it. It was a rectangular shape with the width of the road and about one and a half times in height. And he saw that it was translucent, like some kind of hologram. It was like semi-transparent because when my professor shined a flashlight through the rectangle, the light penetrated through it, illuminating the road past it, but just barely, like the light only went a foot or two beyond that screen. It was just standing or floating there, and yet it was not attached to anything. 
It held its own weight, but it was like weightless at the same time. Its surface was like wavy or rippling. My professor got out of the car to investigate the strange floating rectangle. He went right up to it, and as he did, it was emitting a vibration or low humming that he could just feel in his bones. There was an effect that the closer he got to the rectangle, the stronger the vibration was on the objects around it. And as he got close to it, he saw the hair on his arm standing up like there was some kind of energy in the air. And there were dense trees on each side of the road, so he couldn't go around this rectangle in the middle of the road. He went up to the trees and broke off a branch. He then poked the branch into the rectangle, and he saw subtle ripples going up and down through the rectangle from the place where he touched the surface. And he stuck the stick all the way into the rectangle, and there was no resistance. But he didn't see the stick going through the other side. It was like it disappeared or became invisible. And then he pulled it out, and the stick was unchanged, not burnt or deformed in any way. Not knowing what this rectangle was, he went back to his car, continually looking at the rectangle. He didn't want to risk driving through it. So he drove his car in reverse until the road became wide enough to turn around and head back to where he came from. To this day, he still doesn't know what it was. He said it looked like a two-dimensional shape, like a semi-transparent rectangle stretched across the road perpendicular to the surface. He didn't even know how it was possible for a two-dimensional shape to be floating like that, but he saw it with his own eyes. I don't know if he ever went back to where he found it. He didn't elaborate. He didn't even say exactly where it was. This was just when we were chatting in the club room after 6 p.m., doing homework or just resting and eating snacks. And I never got back into contact with him after graduating, moving out of that college town, and then the pandemic hit. I don't know, but I suspect that's one of the things that pushed him to become a professor of mathematics, seeing a rectangle in the middle of nowhere. That's not something that happens every day, now is it? Anyways, that's all I know. Cap. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Aliens. Yeah, that's my first thought. For sure. Aliens. A ripple in cross-lateral universe or yeah it could just be another universe so not aliens just us he should have jumped through it dimensions or like dropped the stick to see if it just disappeared mm. uh sorry side note have, did you hear the story about the guy i think it was in the nevada mountains the guy that found the uh the portal no and then when he went to like he told everyone about it like he was like, this is real. This is a thing. And then when he went to go find it, he disappeared. No one ever found him again. Um, and there's some people that say, oh, it's probably a government cover-up. Or he found it and then wasn't able to come back from whatever dimension he hopped into. Oh, interesting. So you could scour. Like his videos, You can. he made a video about him trying to find this thing. It's on YouTube. I don't know. Maybe I'll cover that for one of these stories. You should. Maybe I will. Okay. Sorry. Continue with the stories. Yeah. You're all good. Alrighty. This one is from r slash scary stories by Apprensive Oil 914. My mom went out for a drive and came back different. I don't think she's my mom anymore. Hey, honey. I'm thinking of heading out for a drive. Care to join me? My mother's voice echoed. Glancing up, I responded, Thanks, Mom, but I think I'll pass. Where are you headed? I thought I'd take the scenic route through the forest by Rockefeller Mountain, she replied with a hint of excitement. 
All right, have fun, I said. With a gentle kiss on my cheek, my mother departed. I sat there listening as the hum of the car's engine faded into the distance. Settling into the couch, I grabbed some snacks from the fridge and began mindlessly watching an old war film. The movie, combined with the coziness of the couch, gradually pulled me to sleep. As quick as I fell asleep, an incessant vibration of my phone jerked me back to consciousness. Rubbing my eyes, I picked it up and was met with a series of missed call notifications from my mom. I tried returning her calls, but each attempt was met with her voicemail. Glancing at the clock, it read 10.48 p.m. She left at precisely 3.23 p.m. No drive, especially on that trail, would take that long. A storm of thoughts began to rage in my head, each more worrisome than the last. Had she gotten lost? Had the car broken down? Or was it something worse? As these scenarios whirled around in my mind, a sharp, sudden sound pierced through the air, the ring of the doorbell. I sprang from the couch, feet pounding the wooden floor as I raced to the door. The narrow view through the peephole revealed the face of my mother, but something was off. Her eyes, usually so full of warmth, seemed distant, almost hollow. Swinging the door open, my voice was a mix of relief and frustration. Where have you been all this time? She met my gaze, those vacant eyes seeming to peer right through me. Silent, she brushed past me with an air of detachment, making her way to her room without uttering a word. The next day was somewhat normal. I found her in the kitchen going through the familiar routine of preparing breakfast, but there was a change in her demeanor. Our usual conversation was absent, replaced by silence. As I readied myself for work, I tried to bridge the gap. Hey mom, I'm heading off to work, see you later. All I received was a nod, a silent acknowledgement, leaving a cold space where her usual warm response would be. I got off work late. I pulled into the driveway around 2 or 3 a.m. Trying not to make a sound, I crept into the house, not wanting to wake my mom. I tiptoed through the dimly lit halls towards my kitchen to grab some snacks and take them to my room. But when I flicked on the kitchen light, there she was. My mom, standing still, staring outside the window towards her backyard. The sight took me back. Mom? Why are you up? What are you looking at? I waited for a reply, but silence hung in the air. Shrugging it off, I said, work was all right today. Left a bit early after some friends took off. While grabbing my stuff from the fridge, I couldn't help but ask, You okay, Mom? She answered, still staring out at the backyard. Yes, okay. The way she spoke was odd. It was too upbeat, like she was thrilled about something. It didn't fit the moment at all. It was just off. Grabbing my snacks, I headed straight to my room, leaving the kitchen lights on for her. Morning came with the familiar smell of breakfast. On weekends, mom would cook since there was no rush for work. I headed downstairs calling out, good morning. I grabbed some juice and sat down. She replied cheerily, good morning, sweetie, looking like her usual self. She asked about work and how I slept. I wanted to remind her we talked the night before, but I didn't. I repeated what I'd said and she acted like it was new information. We chatted more, then settled to eat. As I sliced into my pancakes, something caught my eye. I pulled out a tiny, gleaming sewing needle from the soft center. My heart raced as I held it up, asking, Mom, what's this? I held the needle aloft, the sharp point catching the light. This was in my pancakes, I stammered. 
Looking at it, her face reflected genuine concern. She hurriedly assured me, I'm so sorry, I'd never want to hurt you, truly. Her embrace was warm and comforting. Don't eat any more of that, I'll whip up a new one. Her words almost made me feel guilty for suspecting her. It was just so bizarre that doubt naturally crept in. The day proceeded without another hitch. Laughter, movies, gossip, and our ritualistic goodnight capped it off. I climbed into bed around 10.30 p.m. As a kid, I had a paralyzing fear of the dark. To combat this, my mom had placed two nightlights, one in my room and another in the hallway. Though my room was now devoid of the light, the hallway still had its comforting glow. Awakening for a sip of water, I froze. The glow from under my door was intermittently obscured by a shadow. Someone stood there, stifling my breath. I watched it for what felt like an eternity, the shadow unwavering. Mom? I said softly. There was no reply. Instead, the shadow receded, gliding silently towards her room. Morning found me weary. The haunting shadow, the weight of eyes on me, made, me, made sleep impossible. I confronted her at breakfast. Mom, were you outside my room around 3 a.m.? She evaded the question. Instead, her voice tinged with nostalgia. Do you remember letting me brush your curls when you were little? Let's do that now. Beside the sink, conditioner and a brush waited. Recent events screamed caution, but this was my mom. I relented, sinking into the familiarity of her touch. As she worked on my tangles, time melted away. Our conversation continued as she rinsed my hair, but as I was talking, I suddenly felt a hard grip tighten around my hair. Without warning, my head was forced into the water filling the sink. Panic overtook me. I was being drowned. It's surprising how weak you feel in a situation like this, with your mind racing and someone using their entire weight to hold you down by the back of your head. My arms flailed, at times trying to push myself up using the edges of the kitchen counter. After what felt like an eternity, the grip released. Gasping and coughing, I pulled my head out of the water and spun around to confront my mother. What are you doing? I yell while trying to make sense of what just happened. That was the first time I actually suspected anything from my mom, but I mean, what the actual hell? She started laughing, pointing at me with one hand while the other kept slapping her knee. I got you. You should have seen your face. Staring in shock, my displeasure was clear enough that her laughter faded, replaced by a look of concern. Come on, don't be upset. It was just a joke. She stepped closer, arms open for a hug. I quickly sidestepped, keeping distance between us, a wary expression evident on my face. I was genuinely afraid. That wasn't the kind of joke my mother would make. She'd never take a prank to such extremes, certainly not one that could hurt me. It was at this moment I realized something was terribly off about her. In fact, I began to doubt if she was really my mother at all. From then on, I became distant. Our conversations were minimal, only out of necessity. I began to avoid meals, spending more time locked in my room. Those eerie nights when she stand outside my door persisted. It was like clockwork, always around the same hour. At every night, after a while, the shadow would recede. I grew more anxious, opting to leave the house frequently, taking refuge at friends' places just to avoid being home with her. She stopped going to work altogether. During the day, she'd be in the backyard, engaged in strange activities like digging random holes or just standing there, seemingly talking to herself, though I could never make out the words. However, 
Last night's event is one that will forever be etched in my memory. Before drifting to sleep, I recall praying for an uninterrupted night's rest. The mere sight of her shadow under my door had become a haunting and fearsome nightly ordeal. I found myself jolted awake in the pitch blackness of my room. Reluctantly, I shifted my gaze to the bottom of the door. As I feared, her shadow was there. She was standing just outside, silent as ever. I tried to force myself back to sleep, but given the circumstances, sleep eluded me. Then, something different occurred. A knock. Seven soft, deliberate knocks. After the knocks, silence consumed the room. Lying there, fear paralyzed me. What was different tonight? Why did she decide to knock now? A chilling thought struck me. My door didn't have a lock. It never did, even from my childhood. The last semblance of a barrier between us wasn't even secured. The eerie knocks resumed, more insistent this time. Knock, 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 knock. Reacting instinctively, I pulled the covers over my head, clinging to those childhood beliefs of safety. But deep down, I knew it wouldn't protect me now. The sound of the door creaking open made my heart pound harder. I braced myself, waiting for the sound of footsteps, but there were none. Had she retreated, or was she just standing there, watching? Minutes dragged on in terrifying silence. Then suddenly, there was a rapid, scuttling noise. It sounded impossibly fast, moving from the floor to the walls to the ceiling. The entire room echoed with it. Blind terror overcame me, thoughts racing uncontrollably. Is she crawling on all fours? How is she moving so fast? What is she doing? Am I going to die? These fears consumed me until darkness took over. Whether from stress or sheer panic, I lost consciousness. Gratefully, it spared me from whatever horror unfolded that night. When morning light finally greeted me, my room was a mess, everything thrown into chaos. It was nowhere in sight. Did it leave? Is it still in the house? These questions remain unanswered. Gathering my courage, I finally left the safety of my bed and managed to prop a chair against the door for some semblance of security. I'm at a loss for what to do next or whom to turn to, but one thing is certain, I can't spend another night here. The house has been eerily silent since I woke up. I'm prepared to remove the chair and make a break for it. So far, there's been no sound outside my door, which I hope means the coast is clear. You ready for part two? Yeah, I was like, don't leave me hanging. (laughs) (laughs) Growing up, our house was filled with warmth and laughter, thanks mostly to my mom. She was a kind who would leave sweet notes in my lunchbox, and every night without fail, she'd tell me stories of her own childhood until I drifted off to sleep. She was the cornerstone of our family, the guiding light. We were close, incredibly so. That's why when she returned from her drive that night, that change was so glaringly obvious. Finally, mustering the courage, I left my bed and slowly opened the door. The house was unsettlingly silent, as though the house itself was holding its breath. No sign of my mom. The memories of the earlier incidents clouded my thoughts, like the time I found a sewing needle in my pancakes, or the cold, emotionless gaze she held when she tried to drown me in the sink. Those memories gnawed at my sanity. The memories stirred a fear within me, the dread that she might be lurking in some shadowy corner of the house. Without hesitation, I sprinted out the front door and got into my car. I shifted to reverse and sped out of the driveway, not once looking back. As the house shrunk in the rearview mirror, 
A weight seemed to lift off my shoulders. I called a friend telling them I needed a place to crash for the night, not taking the time to explain everything that happened. But just as that weight of relief lifted off my shoulders, it was immediately replaced with fear upon hearing a voice, one I cannot forget. Honey, why are you leaving? It came from the back, specifically the trunk. It was my mom, if I can ever even call her that anymore. I glanced in the rear view mirror. Her eyes, grotesquely wide, stared back. They held no warmth, no motherly love, just a cold, predatory hunger. Panic took over. Not thinking of the consequences, I flung the car door open and threw myself out, feeling the abrasive scrape of the concrete against my skin. The world seemed to spin endlessly until, with a jarring thud, I came to a stop. Lying on the ground, every breath felt like an impossible effort. The bright headlights of a passing car illuminated my battered form, and soon kind hands were helping me, reassuring words offering solace while calling for an ambulance. Later in the hospital, the doctor informed me of my injuries. Turns out I'd broken my left leg and fractured my hip. Thankfully, none were life-threatening. The pain was a constant reminder of the ordeal, but the comfort of the hospital bed and the assurance of safety offered some respite. But then, an unmistakable sound broke the silence. Seven soft, deliberate knocks on my hospital room door. You can't run anymore, my mother's voice whispered. How did she find me? How did she know? I don't have the strength to move. I fear these might be my last words. If anyone finds this, know that she's not my mom. She's something else. Something far more sinister. Goodbye. Hey, yo. <laughs> they really left you hanging there. <laughs> yeah. What the heck? <laughs> you can see it, but all our listeners can't see it. But I'm like rocking in my chair, just like making all these faces like, what the f- what the heck? A sewing needle in the pancakes? Are you kidding me? Some Coraline stuff. Yeah, seriously. Plus, waffles are better than pancakes anyway. So Waffles are pretty good. I'm kind of a <laughs> pancake gal myself. I well, like a good pancake. With, have fun with your needles and your pancakes. I will. Okay, watch. Loser. Watch me. <laughs> good stories. Okay, you ready for mine? I was born ready, foo. All right. Hey listeners, this is Jesse. Um, I'm editing the story and I just realized I made a massive, massive goof on my end. This is just a testament to always proofread your your writings. So um, in this upcoming story, the, uh, the man we're going to talk about, one of the men, his last name is Rogers. And I refer to him as Roberts for a while and I eventually switched to Rogers. So Um, Just proofread your stuff. Don't be an idiot like me. Enjoy the story. Bye. Okay, so imagine for a second it's a nice, a nice, beautiful, sunny day in September. It's the end of summer, and you and your family decide to venture to the beach for a full day of swimming, sunbathing, and relaxation. However, when you get to the beach, you are met with a disturbing sight, to say the least. A 500-foot-long cruise ship right off the coast, blocking your view, is engulfed in flames, and corpses line the shore. Sounds like the dream I had last night. (laughs) You're like, what are you talking about? Every time I I go to the beach. (laughs) I close my eyes and boom, fire. (laughs) Fire. Bodies. This is the story of the final voyage of the SS Morrow Castle 
Ooh, color me intrigued. On the evening of September 7th, 1934, the SS Morrow Castle was making its way from Havana, Cuba to New York City when, tra- when tragedy struck. The captain of the ship, Robert Wilmot, had suddenly passed away. It is reported that he complained of stomach pain after eating his dinner that was delivered to him, and soon afterwards he died from a supposed heart attack. That is what was reported, but in reality, it could have been something else. Unfortunately, we still don't, do not know the real cause of his death. Um, his death was the beginning of the end for this ship. It was as if his spirit commanded the sea to attack the ship. Rough waves were smashing against it. The wind was very strong. At 2.50 a.m., only a mile off the Long Beach Island shore, the crew and passengers were alerted that a fire had broken out from one of the lockers on Deck B. In only 30 minutes, the entire ship was covered in flames. The new acting captain, William Warms, instead of steering the ship towards land, he kept the pace. Suddenly, the power went out so no one could see where they were going. They couldn't send out signals for help. Passengers in their rooms were stuck like mice in a maze. Smoke began to fill everyone's lungs and the floor became hot like lava. Due to the heat and the flames, people couldn't wait for the lifeboats to be unloaded, so their only option was to jump 50 feet into the water below. The waves below made it incredibly hard to swim, almost impossible. Captain Wilmot felt like it was not important enough to inform passengers on how to properly put on the life vests. He felt that there really would not be a situation where they needed to know those very important instructions. In a panicked state, people quickly threw on the life vests and jumped overboard. When they hit the water, the life vests shot up and it would knock them out break or break their necks and essentially they drowned. Because, you know, properly didn't know how to put them on. Because of this, only six of the 12 lifeboats were launched into the wavy water below and were mostly full with crew members. The lifeboats that didn't make their way down into the water were stuck from paint. Yes, paint. The captain was obsessed with keeping the entire crew busy, so one thing he made them do was continuously paint the ship. Wow. Another sad story is that of a man named Franz Debesch. This 18-year-old was an Olympic swimmer. He noticed the frantic women looking for their life vests, so every time he was able to get uh, his hands on one of them, he would simply give it away to the, to the next woman he saw. He stated that he could swim better than everyone on the ship, so he didn't need one anyway. When it came time for Franz to jump overboard, he jumped right off the stern. The stern is where the propellers are, and unfortunately... They were still running. The power had not gone out yet. His body was never recovered. Jeez. For those who don't know, a SOS message cannot be sent out until ordered by the captain. The radio operator, George Rogers, refrained from sending out the pleading message for help for 38 minutes. Warms, the captain, claimed he told Rogers to send out the SOS immediately after the fire started, but in reality... Once again, it was 38 minutes. That's a long time for a boat to burn. Yeah. Fire is insane, as we all know, and can destroy pretty much everything in its path. But why did the boat catch on fire? No one is sure. 
However, the fire was feeding off of the oil-based paint that covered the entire ship and the varnished furniture. So, caught on fire, but the entire ship itself was just fueling it. He said, let's make this all flammable. (laughs) I mean, keep that in mind. Out of the 550 passengers and crew, 137 perished. By the time rescue crews had made it out to the ship, it was too late. Bodies had been washing up on the shore for a while now. Along with the debris and bodies, the ship itself had made its way to the shore of Asbury Park. Hundreds to thousands of people made their way to the beach to see what the heck was going on. It was an extremely eerie sight to see. People who had come to the beach to witness the ship for themselves began to smell something disgusting coming from the ship. The ship's deck was too hot to retrieve the bodies of those who perished on board, so they sat there and rotted for months. Oh, gross. For six months, the ship stayed put on the beach, and it brought in a lot of tourism. The shops that had closed, or were close to closing, had opened their doors again, and those shops became very successful. I'm sure they don't look at it this way, but they were for sure profiting off of the SS Morrow Castle disaster. Souvenirs such as stamped pennies and postcards depicting the ship on fire could be purchased. Oh, wow. See, I understand that they would be in business because they can't control who comes in their doors. Like if it's a failing bakery or Mm -hmm. something. But come on, pennies? Yeah, and what's funny is this was around the Great Depression. Oh. That's why they were mostly like closing down. Tourism was at an all-time low. No one had money to visit. There you go. When the bodies were finally recovered, the local morgue didn't have enough room for all of them, so multiple different buildings close to Asbury Park became temporary morgues. One of them was a three-story home on Ashley Avenue. The house originally provided room and board for fishermen, but quickly had to replace them with all of the dead bodies. The Coast Guard came by with truckloads of bodies covered in white sheets. In an interview with Asbury Park Press, the owner of the home said the following. They picked up all of these people who were floating, but some of them were clinging to dead loved ones. They had to tell them to let them go because they only had room on the boat for the people that were alive. Jeez. When survivors of the fire were able to get a a look at the bodies that washed washed to shore, they had to literally take a number, go one by one, and see if they were able to identify their loved ones who had perished. Locals of Asbury Park claim that the souls who lost their lives September 8th still haunt the very buildings where their bodies were taken. The Asbury Park Convention Hall, Asbury Lane's Bowling Alley, and even the boardwalk itself have reports of unexplainable things happening there. I could only find one source for this next part, but there are claims that parents of Cuban children had paid a just a few dollars, a couple dollars, to have their children stowed away on the ship and sent to New York City from Cuba for a better life. It roughly takes the 550 number of passengers to 620. The crew members who secretly hid the children on board left them in their hiding spots when they got word that their ship was on fire. These poor kids, not knowing where to go or uh, who to ask for help, were stuck in their rooms and a good number, a good number of them perished. 
Remember, I can only find one source for this info, so who knows if this is actually true. However, it kind of makes sense because, once again, this is during the Great Depression. So for these crew members, they were making little to no money um, working on this ship. It was work. Anyone, you know, you, you're willing to take any work. And so for them to make an extra couple bucks on the side makes sense. Remember the man I mentioned earlier named George Roberts? He was the radio operator for the SS Morrow Castle. At first, he was hailed a hero for sending out the distress signal. However, over time, new evidence came to light that actually makes Roberts a really bad dude. The captain of the ship is not the person who hires a radio operator. It is assigned by the government. Interesting. But why did they hire Roberts? They failed to do a background check on him, and if you did, you would find that he has a very bad rap sheet. One of the crimes he is guilty of committing is arson. Arson? <laughs> when Roberts was asked by a future employer, Vincent Doyle, what he did when the fire broke out, Roberts responded in a very suspicious way. He mentioned how one could have started the fire, where they could have, um, where they could, where they could have started the fire. So how and where, and what accelerants they could have used, and so on and so on. It's like asking a serial killer, you know, we know you weren't there, but like if you how, did kill them, how would you have done yeah, it? How would you have done it? Yeah, exactly. But because of this, Doyle became very suspicious of Roberts and knew something was wrong with him. When Roberts caught on that Doyle was suspicious of him, he mailed a homemade bomb to Doyle's office. It went off, but it didn't kill him. It blew off his fingers, but, but Vincent Doyle survived. Roberts was sentenced to prison for attempted murder. After serving prison time, and then right after serving in World War II, Rogers killed a man named William Hummel and Hummel's daughter, Edith. Why? Because Rogers thought it would be the better thing to do than pay Hummel back the money he owed him. I don't know what he owed the money for, but he just simply owed him money. So something's off here. Rogers is off. Could he have been the one that started the fire? It's interesting to note that some believe the original captain of the, of the ship, Robert Wilmot, was poisoned. If you remember, he had his meal delivered to his room, and then later complained of stomach pain shortly after passing away from a, quote, heart attack. Wilmot's body was never found, so it's possible that this was all one big cover-up. The Marl Castle rested on the shores near Asbury Park for several months during the autumn of 1934. Subsequently, it was transported to Baltimore, disassembled, and eventually sold as scrap. One year ago, a massive anchor was located in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, and as of early this month, so September of, two, of 2023, it was confirmed to be the missing anchor from the SS Morrow Castle. No way. Yep. If you were to search the area of the wreckage, you would most likely find remnants of another ship that wrecked in the exact same spot 80 years prior. The ship was called the New Era, and you can visit local museums to view items and the anchor of the ship that have been found. And that is the eerie and creepy story of the SS Morrow Castle disaster. Yeah, that's terrifying. It's... I mean, it could be, like, one big cover-up for something because it's just, like, 
why would the captain tell, hey keep keep painting it keep keep painting it with all these very um flammable paints and uh and then they yeah and then they hire Rogers who they didn't do a background check but he's he's known to set fires and and kill people yeah and it's just convenient that the captain died and then disappeared like so what i say what i mean by that is excuse me they weren't able to find the captain's body to do an actual autopsy because they were still on the boat until the fire happened right so is it a cover-up did the captain jump off with the life vest well he's dead or the other captain you mean oh yes yeah uh, another thing to to note, um, I only saw this in one article, but there were rumors that the boat was storing uh, firearms and ammunition. And yeah, once again, that, I mean, that's some pretty intense stuff right there as well. And so it's very possible that that alone could have been one of the reasons why they tried to cover it up. But if it was filled with ammunition why didn't all the ammunition just start going off <laughs> maybe it did <laughs> yeah that's true uh, and possibly hiding kids it's like if someone found out about that they're like well crap we can't get caught for this so jeez, mm-hmm. yeah. that's dark yep well that's the uh that's the story for today well i'm spooked good do you have anything else for us today that's it for me All right, guys, we will scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye.